I'll invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2. And I know what you're thinking. Thank goodness he made it through chapter 1. We took three Sundays for that. We're probably going to take four Sundays to get through chapter 2. So just giving you a heads up. We are going to single out each one of these letters to each of these seven churches as we move along, because there's so much packed into these letters that we can learn from. So this morning, we're looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's going to be verses one through seven of chapter two. And this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's no surprise that he is the main focus of the entire book. Now, if we look at the book of Revelation with this in mind, it exists in three major parts, and all of these parts center on verse 19 of chapter 1. That reads, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, metatauta. And this outline given to John by Jesus himself lines up with the person, the possession, and the program of Jesus Christ. If we look at chapter 1, this is the first major section. It centers around the person of Jesus Christ, the things which you have seen. John was given this vision of Christ, the things which he had seen. That's referring to his vision. Chapters 2 and 3 focus on the possession of Jesus Christ, the things which are. Jesus is currently walking in the midst of his church, and the church is his possession, the possession of Jesus Christ. Chapters 4 through 22, the rest of the book, outlines future things. It's the program of Jesus Christ, the things which will take place after this, and that is after the church stuff. So after the church stuff, Um, we see chapters 4 through 22 take place. And this details the program by which Jesus will perfect or complete his children and his creation. So that's the bird's eye view of this book of Revelation. We are starting this morning talking about the possession of Jesus Christ in chapter 2. And when we look at the book of Revelation, everyone wants to know where they fit into it okay, this is great, all this prophecy, that's awesome. Where do I fit in this book? And I will tell you, if you are a born-again Christian, if you have been saved, then you have been born into the body of Jesus Christ. And you fit into the things which are, the church things. This morning, we are in church. We are a part of the body of Christ. So we have to take special care to look at these things in chapters 2 and 3 with the lens that it affects us right now. We're not studying the history of 1,900 years ago, what the believers had to deal with back then. That's part of it, but that's not the, the end of it. These things still apply to us today. Now, these letters are like ogres. There are several layers to them. 
Okay, ogres, onions. Okay. You have to peel back each of these layers to uncover the treasures that are underneath. So I've got these four levels of application, and we already talked about this a couple Sundays ago, but I'm going to run through them again just to make sure that you've got them. And I've got a little uh, picture up there that'll help you when you're writing them down. The first level of application is the local application. Each of these churches were real. They had real people and real problems, as we'll see, and they were in the area of Asia Minor. Jesus addresses these problems, and he addresses the good things that were done by each of these congregations. So we have the local application. The second, these letters are admonitory to all churches. All seven letters were sent to all seven churches in this list. And each letter sits the phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And churches being plural. They were not only supposed to hear what the Spirit had to say to their own church, but to all the other churches as well. This seems to point to the fact that all of these letters are universally applicable to the church as the body of Christ. They're meant for more than just the congregation they're addressed to, and they apply to us still in the church today. The third level of application or layer, is a personal application. Each one of us can take things away from these letters. So take your right hand, grab your earlobe. I'm doing it again. Do you have an ear? Yes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. This letter is addressed to you. And we will see that uh, going throughout all of these letters. We can't just sit back with the attitude that we're studying history, but we are studying something that is directly and immediately applicable to us. So let's look at ourselves to see if we can glean something from the text personally. And also, don't get caught up into the mindset of looking at the faults of other congregations, because it's easy for us to sit back here this morning and think, oh, this church in town exhibits these bad characteristics of Sardis. Oh, that church exhibits these bad characteristics. That's not what this is for. You know, we can see those things, yes. But we must be looking at our little congregation here. What are we doing that can be improved? What are we doing that Jesus would say, and y'all are doing good in this area? What are we doing? Don't make these someone else's problems. And the fourth level of application is prophetic. These letters serve as a prophetic outline of roughly 2,000 years of church history. And if the letters were in any other order than what Jesus gave them in, this wouldn't work. In the order that Jesus gave, these outline church history. And I've put the the types of churches, the ages which they were applicable up there for you. But these are not universally agreed upon. Okay, You'll find different commentators, different writers that disagree with these specific dates, 
the point is these different types of churches are outlined in the letters. And that's really what we're getting at. These letters consistently exhibit the same seven design elements. And there are a few exceptions, and we'll look at those as they present themselves. But for now, just understand that the letters all follow a similar structure. And this structure is as follows. And I've got this up there for you, too. First is the name of the church. We got the next one. The name of the church. Second, the title Christ uses of himself. And it's notable that in all letters except for one, John references or writes down this dictation from Jesus characteristics mentioned in chapter one. So the characteristics of Jesus that are mentioned in chapter one are alluded to in these letters. Third is commendation, what they did good at. Fourth is condemnation, what you need to work on. Five is exhortation. This is how you fix your problem. Verse six, not verse six. Number six, promise to the overcomer. And seven, every letter closes with the sentence, he that has an ear, let him hear what the scripture, the spirit says to the churches. So we'll see these things repeat themselves over and over in these letters. So Revelation chapter two, let's get started. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. This letter is addressed to the angel or what I would think is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Now, we think about John. We know that John was the pastor of Ephesus at one point. He pastored there for about 30 years. So I cannot imagine Jesus dictating to me a letter written to Calvary Fellowship Pleasant Hill. That had to be overwhelming for him. You know, when... Jesus starts out dictating these letters to John. He says, John, I want you to write this down. Um, To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Oh, I bet it caught him off guard a little bit. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. Now, Ephesus was a thriving port city on the west coast of what is today Turkey. We know that this area in Biblical times and John's day was called Asia. And it was just a small little section of land. Uh, didn't take up all of Turkey, but just on the West Coast. Ephesus was called the Queen of Asia. And it was extremely wealthy and it was a beautiful city. You know, emperors would even come to Ephesus on vacation. It was that decadent. Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. And I've got an artist rendering for you of what that may have looked like. Diana was her Roman name, and Artemis was her Greek name. This temple was four times larger than the Parthenon at Athens. It was a huge structure. It stood on a platform of 425 feet by 220 feet. So if you think about a football field being 100 yards, this was almost one and a half times the length of a football field. And 
Uh, it was 141 yards long and about 73 yards wide. And that was the platform. The actual structure of this temple would have been a little bit smaller than that. But it boasted 127 ionic columns, which you'll see up there. Just massive. These columns each stood 60 feet high. Being a fertility deity, Diana was worshipped by engaging in all kinds of immoral acts. Um, and there were temple prostitutes, both male and female, that would be around the temple, and you could go in with them and worship Diana. The city also boasted an amphitheater, and we've got a picture of that, a couple actually, that could seat 25,000 people. Here's an aerial view of the amphitheater. And if you go back to Acts, there's a little portion in Acts that outlines some commotion that happens in this very amphitheater. And that's cool to look at. And then the next picture, we've got a view from the actual theater looking down onto the stage. So it's a pretty large structure. I mean, it's not as big as what we have today, obviously, but nevertheless, very impressive. There was also a library in Ephesus that contained over 200,000 volumes in a time before printing. Think about that. This is the library. Over 200,000 volumes before they were able to print and mass produce things. People had to write these down. So the library was just down the way from brothels. So if you went that way, you would get to some brothels. Um, common in Ephesus, and archaeologists actually discovered a tunnel from the library to the brothels. So I'll let you ruminate on that for a second. And we know that from Acts 19.19, among several other sources, that the occult was deeply entrenched in this pagan city of Ephesus. This account in Acts reads, Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So this is after the gospel had taken effect in Ephesus. It was so powerful that the people who once practiced magic and witchcraft got together and burned their materials. The total, 50,000 pieces of silver. This region of Ephesus, and it would actually encompass all of these seven churches, uh, was infiltrated with idols and idol worship. Ephesus and the area surrounding was located in the area where the Anatolians and the Greeks would have merged, would have come together. The Anatolians were more primitive in their culture, and they depicted their idols their gods as more animistic. They had animal-like characteristics. Where the Greeks, the sophisticated folk, depicted their gods more humanly, more as humans. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, I want you to pay attention to this imagery. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. 
This is a picture of one who is certifiably in control. He's walking amongst his churches and he is holding the pastors, the overseers of those churches in his right hand. He is in control. And I like this. You know, I don't mind being carried in Jesus's right hand. You know, that actually, that comforts me a great deal. Um, knowing that he is here and he is amongst us. Verse two, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Your works, your labor, and your patience. This was a busy church by all accounts. And today you could say that it's the church with all the programs. You know, any age group, there's a program for that. We've got a special Bible study for the 13 and 14 year old, you know, like everything was being done. They were a busy, busy church, their works, their labor, and their patience. Now, there's nothing wrong with being busy. Jesus actually says, I commend you for your works, for your busyness. But there's a trap that the Ephesians fell into, and we'll get to that. It's a slippery slope into Jesus' condemnation for these guys. But the main thing that I want you to take away from this first part of verse 2 is that they are busy. They are always working for Christ. And it's good works. It doesn't say anywhere that they were working for themselves. They were working for Christ, and it was a genuine work. Verse 2 says, And that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. This church, in other words, has a healthy immune system. If you look back to Acts 19, you'll find the Apostle Paul actually planted the church at Ephesus. And he comes back in his second missionary journey, and he visits them again. But he goes away later, and he wants to talk again with the elders at Ephesus. So he sails into Miletus, probably about 20 miles south on the coast there of Asia from Ephesus. And he calls to the elders at Ephesus, says, hey guys, I want to talk to you. Can you come down here to Miletus and talk with me? So they make the journey. They meet up with Paul. And what happens is basically Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. He knows that he's not going to see them again. And it was a very heartfelt and very emotional display between both Paul and the elders that he was speaking to. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That's from verse 10 of Acts 19. And this is remarkable. You know, the gospel took hold in this area so firmly and so effectively that everyone in this region heard the name of Jesus. And that is something that I don't think has been rivaled even up to this point in history. I mean, 
when you tell someone about the gospel, it should be effective to change their life. And if it is, they can't help but tell somebody else. You know, and it spreads. This is multiplication. This is not addition. You know, each one of these guys that hears the gospel tells however many others. And each one of them goes out and tells others. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And I say all of that to give you some insight into the early days of this church. But it also brings you to that exchange in Acts 20, 17 through 38, where Paul is addressing the elders of Ephesus. Paul knew that he wouldn't see them again. He said that the Spirit was urging him to go to Jerusalem. And he knew by the Spirit that chains and tribulations awaited him. So he tells the elders, guys, I won't see you again. This is the last. Starting in Acts twenty twenty seven, Paul warns these guys about what is to come in their church. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day, With tears. Paul is prophetically warning these guys there will be false teachers, wolves, that will come in to your flock, the church, and try to strip people away from the true gospel of Christ. He's warning them. And Jesus dictates this letter to John, commending the job that the Ephesians did in their treatment of false teachers. Jesus dictates this to John about 35 years after Paul talked with these guys. In that short of time, the wolves had already come in and had already been trying to strip the flock away. 1 Timothy 3, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5, warns against evil men. Revelation 2.2 commends the Ephesians for not putting up with evil men. We see these ties in Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.14-26 warns of divisive men who seek to split off sheep from the flock. We know that was taken care of by Revelation. 1 John 4.1-3 warns about false prophets. Same guy that's writing this down in Revelation, John. John's epistles were written to Christians in the region of Asia. That includes the Ephesians. All of these examples have direct ties to the church at Ephesus. They were warned that these false teachers would come, and Jesus commends them for testing these guys and then rejecting them. 
Now, I want you to, to catch that. Step one is identifying the false teachers. Step two, and the necessary step that comes after step one, is rejecting the false teachers. You don't just identify them and let them fester in your congregation. You identify them and then reject them. Once a virus is detected in your body, your body attacks it so that it doesn't cause harm to your body. A healthy church body should function in much the same way. What we're doing on Sunday mornings and hopefully what you're doing throughout the week when you study the Word of God is you're building your immune system. It's vitamin C for your spirit. You're building your immune system so that when someone comes in talking crazy talk, you can say, no, get out of here. This is not what God revealed of himself in the Bible. Also, if I tell you, hey guys, let's go way down in the parking lot. After service today, the mothership is coming down and taking us all home. You can say, ah, nope, get out of here. No, that is not what is revealed in the Bible. There is no mothership coming for us. So when we study the Bible, we are building up our spiritual immune system. We can detect the virus and we can do something about it. Verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Dwight L. Moody once came home from a campaign and his family was begging him not to go on another one. But he said something to them that was very profound. He turned to them and said, I grow weary in the work, but not of the work. And I assure you, it's okay to grow weary in the work of Christ. But what a tragedy it is when a worker gets weary of the work. The difference there is incredible. There's nothing wrong with us being absurdly worn out from serving God. But the tragedy comes when you become weary of the work, not in the work. And this church at Ephesus was not weary of his work. They were only tired because they were serving him tirelessly. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And this is the only condemnation that Jesus brings against this church. You have left your first love. I want to highlight, it is not lost, your first love. Sometimes that gets thrown in there and inadvertently, people will switch those words left and lost. They did not lose their first love. They left their first love. Jesus is not saying that they have lost their salvation. This is not a salvific issue. Left simply means neglected. They have neglected their first love. The things that they did when they were first saved did not match up with the things that they were currently doing. And this is mostly a hard issue. You know, we can 
run around and we can serve Christ well, but we may not be on fire for him in our hearts. And that's the issue that we're encountering in this church. We'll see in Revelation 19, a very pointed picture of marriage and heavenly things. And we see throughout, throughout the Bible, marriage is a picture of heavenly things. And we won't get into that too far today, but I want you to take note of that because we will talk about it when we come to Revelation 19. And right here in this text this morning is one place where we can, those of us who are married, we can apply our experience in marriage because Jesus is talking about the love of espousal here, engagement love. And if you've been engaged, you know what I'm talking about. You remember that kind of love when you were engaged to your spouse. How did you feel when your significant other would come around? Just sit up and talk. How did just being around them make you feel? It was almost intoxicating. You were just enthralled with that person. What things in your life have changed once you started dating? So before you were dating, what changed when you started dating? What about when you got engaged? What changed? And then when you got married, what changed? When you're dating, it's almost taboo to pass gas in front of your partner. Nobody wants to do it. You're embarrassed. It's a normal bodily function. I don't, I don't know why you get embarrassed, but we do. But then when you get a little bit more comfortable, like let her rip, tater chip, you have no problem with it. It becomes normal. When you're engaged, you want to brush your teeth. You want to brush your hair. You want to be presentable for this person that you're with. Maybe you even want to go crazy and put on some deodorant. Who knows the lengths that you'll go to. You want to go somewhere nice to eat. You say, honey, I want to take you somewhere nice. Or we don't have to drive by the menu. You want to sit down, eat a meal with them, enjoy their company. And that's really it. You want to spend time with them. You want to be with them. And when you've been married for a while, and the specific time varies for everyone, but you start thinking, well, they're really stuck with me now. You know, they have nowhere else to go. So I'm going to slack off on my hygiene a little bit, stop brushing my hair, stop brushing my teeth. Uh, every other day is fine. You, know? you don't do the things that you used to do the love of a spousal. And especially when you have kids screaming in the back of the car, you don't care if you drive by the menu or not. Say, honey, let's get something quick. Get these kids to occupy their mouths with some food instead of the screaming, right? So you start to leave that love of a spousal behind you. You focus more on bringing home the bacon you know, making a living for your family than you do actually spending time with your wife, just enjoying her company. 
it happens more often than we would like to admit. I want to bring your attention to Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. This passage gives an account of Mary and Martha hosting Jesus in their home. Martha was so busy serving that she didn't find the time to simply stop and listen to Jesus' teaching. But Mary, on the other hand, sat at the foot of Jesus and listened. She listened to his teaching. Martha was so frustrated that Mary wasn't helping her with the chores. She went so far as to ask Jesus to tell Mary to help. And Jesus, you tell her, get her rear end over here and help me with these chores. Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. You see, Martha, I see her as the church at Ephesus, and a lot of people in ministry get caught up in this trap. We're so busy throughout the week serving, you know, preparing our message for Sunday morning, taking care of the church grounds. You get very, very caught up in the things that you just have to do to serve. You forget to just sit and listen. Just be with Jesus. Just read his word for your own enjoyment. Just be close to him. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Oh, how Jesus desires our time and attention. He wants you. That's what he's always wanted. So here's this church at Ephesus, and they're remarkable by human standards, and they're very solid in doctrine. And I want to highlight that for you. This church was very solid in doctrine. They kicked out the false teachers. Their immune system was working overtime. They did well in that area. But Jesus requires devotion alongside the doctrine. Jesus requires devotion alongside doctrine. We put a heavy emphasis on the word of God here and in Calvary in general. And it is his inspired and inerrant word, and it should be read and studied. But knowing your Bible cover to cover won't get you into heaven. The knowledge will not get you into heaven. And please hear me when I say this, because this is the most important takeaway that you'll have today. It isn't how much you know about the Bible. It's about how well you know the author. God's revealed word is the means by which we get to know him. It contains the things he wants us to know about him. And every page of the Bible points to Christ. Old Testament, New Testament, flip to a page you can find Jesus Christ written on that page. You may have to look, but he's there. 
Don't just believe me when I say that. Prove me wrong. If you do, I win and you win. Because you got into the Bible and you studied it and you looked for Jesus. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Jesus is called the great physician. I don't know about you, but I have never even come into contact with a good physician who gives a diagnosis, but not a treatment. Jesus, though he points out our shortcomings, he is always faithful to provide a treatment option. And it may not be the treatment that you like, that you'd like him to give you, but it never really is, is it? Jesus always gives us the fix to our illness. And that is seen here. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now I'll give you the way that you can fix that. Remember, repent, and return. Those are the things that Jesus tells this church to do. And if you see this church in yourself, these are the things that Jesus is telling you to do. Remember, repent, and return. Remember what you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. Repent. And you know, we get all scared by this word repent. In the Greek language, this word literally means to change one's mind. That's all it is. It's not a scary word. Change your thinking. Remember what you did, repent, change your thinking, and return to what you did when you were first saved, when all you wanted to do was get to know Jesus better. He says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now this word quickly is the same one that we saw at the beginning of the book, and it means without delay. There will be no hesitation in rendering this consequence. Jesus will not hesitate to remove the lampstand from its place if they do not repent. Now, I want to clarify that Jesus is not threatening the removal of their status as his children. This is not a salvation issue, again. He isn't saying that they won't be saved if their lampstand is moved. He's talking about the effectiveness of the church. He planted, in effect, this church of Ephesus in the location where they were, in Ephesus. He placed them there. The job of the church is to be the salt and the light of the world. That lampstand should be giving off light to the surrounding area. It should be a Christ-like influence to the people there. If it's not doing its job, Christ will remove that lampstand. And you saw the pictures of Ephesus. It's in ruins today. Apparently, they didn't get their act together. And Jesus removed their lampstand from its place. Now, that is in the local sense. 
The lampstand represents the local congregation at Ephesus. And Jesus, he kept his word. He removed their lampstand and he essentially removed their effectiveness, is what he's saying. You can look good from the outside, and this church did. You can busy yourself with the work of Christ, and to men, it may look like you've got your act together, like you're on fire for Christ. But Jesus sees your heart, and if your heart isn't on fire for him, you run the risk of your effectiveness being removed. Verse 6, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus offers one more word of commendation, what they did good on, to this church. Now, he started off, you did well with your works, your labor, your patience. You did well kicking guys out that didn't need to be there. But I have this against you. You left your first love. And then he circles back to one more good thing. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. This is the only thing that Jesus says, I hate this. There's a lot of things that scripture tells us God hates, but this is the only instance where Jesus himself says, I hate this. And what is it? the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So that begs the question, who are the Nicolaitans? What's up with these guys? Now, they're not the Nickelodeons. The Nickelodeons just like to watch TV late at night. These are the Nicolaitans. Well, we know from their name what they must have represented. Nikeo is the Greek word meaning to conquer or to dominate. You can find this word Nikeo found in Revelation 6.2. And this is in reference to the rider on the white horse. It says he was given to conquering. And my old Nike weightlifting shoes have an inscription on the sides of the soles on the inside of the foot. It says, go forth and dominate. Nike, dominate. Nikeo the root of Nike. Nike was also a goddess of victory. Nike is her Greek name, and the Romans called this same deity Victoria. Victory? Victoria. So we get the idea that Nikeo means to conquer or to dominate. Laos means people. This is the root of our word laity, which refers to the common people. Nikeo Laos, Nicolaitans. Therefore, the compound word Nicolaites in the Greek describes a group of people who sought to conquer the common people. In other words, they sought to dominate the laity. When Christ was crucified, God ripped the veil of the temple from top to bottom. It was symbolic. God removed the barrier between people and himself. God reached down to us. The veil was torn from top to bottom. 
man didn't come to God, you know, tearing the veil from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. This also signified the end of the priesthood. The priesthood or the people that you had to go to as an Israelite before Jesus to get to God. There was an intermediary, that priest. With the death of Christ, that priest, that need for an intermediary is taken away. Christ is our intermediary. He is our high priest. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. What the Nicolaitans tried to do was essentially sew up the veil of the temple. They tried to put that priesthood, in essence, back into place. They tried to put themselves between the people and God, dominating the laity. And this is one reason I think that Jesus hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, because they tried to repair what God destroyed. They tried to sew up that veil of the temple when it was God who ripped it. I don't like people going around and trying to undo what I've been trying to do. I don't enjoy that either. So if God tears something up, you better not be the one trying to put it back together. That's all I'm saying. You'll notice that the Nicolaitans are mentioned again in the letter to Pergamos. And that's not the next one that we'll get to, but the next after that. Jesus condemns the church of Pergamos for having those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So Ephesus, representing the apostolic church, the first hundred years or so of the church, hated these deeds of the Nicolaitans. And that was accounted to them as a gold star. Good job, guys. You hate these deeds. But by the time that Pergamos comes around, and Pergamos signifies the state church, when Rome brought Christianity in as the official religion, and we'll talk about that. By the time that the state church comes around, the deeds of the Nicolaitans had been turned into doctrines of the Nicolaitans. In Ephesus, they're talked about as deeds. In Pergamos, they're talked about as doctrines. Jesus was not happy about that, as we will come to see. And we'll talk about the Nicolaitans again when we make it to Pergamos. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This phrase is repeated in all of these letters, and it's very telling. Not only are these letters addressed to the local churches of these seven cities, they're addressed to all churches, plural. And Jesus wants every church that receives this letter to hear what the Spirit says to all of the other churches. Jesus also addresses everyone that has an ear, as we illustrated with that silly example. And it is silly, but you won't forget that these letters are written to you. And it's not talking about physical ears, like I joked about. It's talking about spiritual ears. You see, not everyone can hear the word of God. 
And sure, they can pick up on the auditory sounds. They can physically hear it. But they can't hear the message of it. Spiritual things are given to those who are spiritual. Paul writes pretty extensively about that. He's speaking to anyone with spiritual perception because he has an important message for us. And if you are a Christian this morning, you have this spiritual perception I'm talking about. And it's nothing mystical. No, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. And that is all things that pertain to him. The Spirit teaches us spiritual things. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And this is that promise to the overcomer that we outlined. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. If you look all the way back to Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24, we see that God put up a no trespassing sign on the Garden of Eden. And it was a scary sign, too. He placed caravine in front of the east gate. He set up these caravine at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, the Genesis account gives us the reason why God guarded the Garden of Eden. It says to guard the way to the tree of life. So what's so important about this tree? Well, he who eats of it has everlasting life. So this also begs the question, why was God so intent on keeping Adam and Eve away from that tree? Well, he only threw them out of the garden after they had sinned, after they had fallen and eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So they were in their fallen state already. God knew that if they ate from the tree of life in their fallen state, they would never be perfected. That was not God's plan. He wanted to perfect them first, and then have them eat of the tree of life. And this is, in Revelation, we see the wrapping up of this. It was a theme that was started in Genesis, this tree of life, and we see the end of that theme in Revelation. God's perfect plan was to perfect us before we eat from the tree of life. We see that the tree will be accessible to him who overcomes. Man, there's a lot of questions that are coming from this. Who are these overcomers? We see numerous times in scripture that believers are referred to as overcomers. That's true here also. If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have overcome the world, the flesh, and Satan, the enemy. And you have that opportunity to do so this morning, if you haven't already. In Revelation 12, 11, It says that believers have overcome the wicked one by the blood of the lamb and by the words 
of their testimony. That's all it takes. The blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. And Jesus has already taken care of the first part for us. All of the works necessary for your salvation has already been taken care of on a cross. All that's left is the word of your testimony. Who do you say Jesus is? The confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is the rock that Jesus built his church on. Who do you say Jesus is? Will you invite him to reign in your heart? And if you have any questions about this decision for Christ, please come talk to me after service. But in conclusion to this morning's study, I want you to think back with me. Think back to the time when you were saved. Think about the things that you did to get closer to Jesus. I want you to write down three things that you did when you were saved. And this week, I challenge you to return to these things, to do them again. Remember, repent, and return. And just see how Jesus blesses you, because he will. Then I want you to write those blessings down. Have them with you. So your assignment for next week, okay, here's your homework. Read chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation in their entirety, just two chapters. Read them a few times if you can. I want you to outline the letter to Smyrna, which is the next one we'll come to in verses 8 through 11. Those seven elements of design are found in Smyrna, but one is missing. See if you can pick it out. And then your last little assignment, repent and do those first works that you wrote down. With that, I'd like to close in a word of prayer and then we'll have actually a couple announcements and then we'll be dismissed. Thank mm-hmm. you.